Let us listen to the words of our God and Maker. Deuteronomy chapter 8, from verse 10 to verse 20. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble and test you so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands produced this wealth for me, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed. Like the nations the Lord destroyed before you, so you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God. Our second Bible reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17, from verse 14. When they came to the crowd... A man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed at that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, Because you have so little faith. Truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon, he asked. From whom did the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own children or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the children are exempt, Jesus said to him. But 
so that we may not cause offence, go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like, a little, like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Thank you, James. Good day again, everyone. Just um, bear with me while I make sure I've got the power. Yes, I do. Wonderful. Please do keep your Bibles open at our passage from Matthew chapter 17. I'll lead us briefly in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you speak to us in your word, the scriptures, and that you do so for our good. Please help us now, Heavenly Father, to concentrate, to rejoice and to tremble at your word, and to become more like our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ on account of taking it to heart. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, why sympathise with infant baptism? There's a striking way to start a sermon depending on your particular convictions. Why sympathise with infant baptism? As an ordained Anglican minister, I do hold that infant baptism is a good and right practice for the church. If you're a follower of Jesus, I will gladly baptise your baby. And my three boys have been baptised as very young people. But, importantly, much more importantly, as a Bible-believing Christian, I hold the conviction that infant baptism is not a first-order issue. It fits in the category of disputable matters. To paraphrase the Apostle Paul in Romans 14, one Christian considers infant baptism a good practice. Another Christian thinks adult baptism is the way to go. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. And it matters far more that people hold what's in line with their conscience than whether or not they fall into one camp or the other. If you are someone who does not agree with infant baptism, yet you're a member of our Anglican Church or a visitor to our Anglican Church, then by definition you hold that infant baptism can't possibly be an issue over which to divide fellowship. And I say, Amen. That is a biblically sound way to think. And I might add, actually, that the baptisms I've enjoyed the most have usually been the baptisms of adults, some of which I've performed myself. When I ask... Why sympathise with infant baptism? I'm not asking whether or not you agree with it. I'm asking why it's a respectable position to hold. The answer as to why it is a respectable position to hold, whether or not you actually hold to it, has very much to do with what Jesus teaches about kingdom faith. The thing I'm going to call kingdom faith. When you learn what Jesus thinks about true saving faith, you learn why it is that the practice of infant baptism makes sense 
whether or not you end up being for it. And some of the most important teachings of Jesus about, again, what I'm calling kingdom faith, actually come to us in today's little section that we're looking at from Matthew's Gospel. So I hope you're already in keen to get stuck into it with me. Now, it starts off with a picture of something that is the very opposite of kingdom faith. That is insidious self-sufficiency. You know what the word insidious means? It's something really bad that creeps up and gets more bigger and bigger and expands. Insidious self-sufficiency. That's the first picture we look at. Look with me again, verse 14. I'll put the words on the screen. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on me. Oh, sorry. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and he's suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. The first thing you've got to notice is we've got a guy here who has the absolute perfect approach to Jesus. He kneels before him. He addresses him as Lord. He asks for mercy. He wants the help of Jesus for something he knows that he is thoroughly incapable of doing himself. That is the ideal approach to Jesus. Incidentally, a couple of weeks ago, we had a woman approaching Jesus like that to heal her daughter. Now we have a man approaching Jesus like that to heal his son. But the reason this guy has come to Jesus is because Jesus' disciples had not been able to help him. They could not heal this man's son. Now, what does Jesus think about the inability of his disciples to do the job at this point? Well, it might not be exactly what you'd uh, expect. It's actually something really full on. Check out Jesus' response. Verse 17, you unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, it came out of the boy and he was healed at that moment. Now, if you're like me, that kind of strikes you as pretty full on. It, it seems that Jesus' response is sort of really over the top and really harsh. It's like a couple of weeks ago, we saw he said, get behind me, Satan, to Peter. And now it's kind of like he's doing that to, to all the disciples. And also on first reading, Jesus' response can seem really unfair which we might, might even say is un-Australian, because it's unfair. See, basically this father has said, hey Jesus, your disciples, being mere little humans, couldn't do this totally impossible and supernatural and really, really difficult job, to which Jesus says, oh my goodness, those guys are such a bunch of losers, how long do I have to stick around, I want to get out of here. And you're like, wouldn't it be more fair for Jesus to have been sort of kind and an understanding in his response at this point. But of course, as I'm sure you all know, Jesus, being the perfect and divine Son of God, has this annoying habit of being absolutely right about 100% of the time. So the right thing for us to do is to actually work out why he seems at least so indignant at this point. Well, let me help you with that. All the way back in chapter 10, so a long way before this, Jesus had given these disciples the authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. That's an incredible gift and authority and responsibility he gave to his disciples. And in the last few sections we've been looking at, just over the last couple of weeks, Jesus has been stressing pretty heavily the idea that 
entry into the kingdom of God is not about great power and glory, but about the humble, other-person-serving way of the cross. So you put two and two together and you start to wonder if, as can easily happen, these disciples had started to think that their amazing power was actually coming from themselves and that the kingdom of heaven was about great power and pride and victory without necessarily the great weakness and shame and the defeat of the way of the cross. As we saw from our first reading in Deuteronomy 8, the Bible assumes that when God gives tremendous success or tremendous power or great prosperity to his people, that our sinful tendency is pretty quickly to start assuming that we kind of deserve it or that it basically comes from ourselves. In other words, insidious self-sufficiency overtakes our sense that we are actually in reality humbly reliant on God who alone gives us all good things. Now, it is true that Jesus' harsh comments could also portray a desperate frustration at the way Israel has so consistently rejected God and therefore fallen under his judgment. Remember Jesus did say, oh generation, how long shall I put up with you? He's actually talking sort of more than just the, the, the disciples. But the writer Matthew wants us to focus in on the failing of the apostles in particular. We know that because of where he goes next. Is it the case that, regardless of how general Jesus' words are meant to be taken, that these apostles have moved into self-sufficiency mode? The answer we're about to learn is certainly yes. Verse 19, then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, presumably the mountain he's just been transfigured on, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. In other words, if you follow the logic, he's saying they didn't even have the tiny, smaller than a mustard seed amount of faith required to do this job. They had moved into self-sufficiency mode rather than God-reliant mode. In fact, in a parallel account, that is an account of this same thing but from another gospel, Mark's gospel, Jesus points out that they didn't think to pray. And prayerlessness is the ultimate indicator of self-reliance. Prayerlessness is the ultimate indicator of self-reliance. You see, the less a person prays, by definition really, the more self-reliant they must be. The more a person prays, the more, obviously, God-reliant they are. This is a teaching that you find all throughout the scriptures for all Christians. Mind you, the Apostle Paul gives this teaching especially to men. Men are commanded, 1 Timothy chapter 2, to be the ones who lift holy hands in prayer, who ask God for things in prayer. So men, 
be the leaders in prayer. You guys know this at our youth group. We've got a little saying. If a guy puts up their hand to pray, we say, real man, because a real man isn't about being a tough guy. A real man is about someone who prays. Ladies, you want to marry someone? You know what an attractive man is? That's right. The one who prays. A praying man. Then comes the final confirmation that the problem here is self-sufficiency rather than a reliance upon God's provision. Jesus again tells them about the way that he is actually going to overthrow the ultimate cause of all demonic possession and sickness and death, the path that will involve him being despised, rejected and shamed before then entering his glory. Jesus tells them in summary form the gospel. And how do the disciples respond when he tells them yet again these true things? Well, let's see, have a look with me. Verse 22. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, and this is not the first time, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples believed his word. They understood that the Christ had to suffer and then enter his glory. And they reasoned that Jesus would indeed be the suffering servant who would take up their infirmities and do away with the effects of sin. And they were overjoyed and elated to know that he would definitely be raised up to new life. Amen. Ah, It makes the point though, doesn't it? All we get is, and the disciples were filled with grief. They're still not there. It was still hard for them to lean not on their own understanding, but to acknowledge the one who would make the straight path all the way to the cross before then being raised in glory. And friends, I've got to say, me for sure, and definitely I reckon all you, we would be no different. If this was us there, we'd be just to say, the disciples are like us at this point. You and I, we so readily trust our own abilities, our own instincts, our own in understanding far more than we trust what God has revealed, even if it's there in the flesh being revealed in front of us. And guys, I've got to say, given that most of us, if not all of us in this room really, on a world scale, would be considered to be the most successful, the most powerful, the most blessed people on the face of the earth, it follows that we in particular need to be especially aware of the ease with which insidious self-sufficiency can render us, frankly, so ineffective for the work of the kingdom. Dear Lord, save us from prayerlessness and from self-reliance and save us from pride. But what would it look like for these disciples and also us, once they did, in fact, put more trust in God than themselves. Well, one of the wonderful things that kingdom faith brings is the freedom to give up rights. The freedom to give up rights. And it's actually a wonderfully liberating thing that Christians enjoy. Don't take it from me, take it from the Bible. Verse 24, after Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma temple tax came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? 
Uh, yes, he does, he replied, and I can't help but think if that was a very hesitant kind of, yeah. There's no indication to say that Peter knew this or not, and given that Jesus is about to sort of inform him about this, you might assume that he doesn't, and just, it's very typical of Peter just kind of talk and hope to say the right thing, right? Yeah, he pays a terrible tax, you know. But why the question in the first place? Well, back in chapter 12, Jesus had made the extraordinary claim that he was, and I quote, greater than the temple. Now, for the Jews, the temple, that's, that's the most important building in the world. That's the place where the true and living God would dwell. Jesus said something greater than the temple is here. And I suspect that might have caused the Pharisees to wonder if Jesus was claiming to be someone who holds such a high or such a priestly office so as to be exempt from the tax, from the upkeep that the average Jewish male would have paid in the service of the temple. And it turns out that that is actually true, for Jesus happens to be the son of the true and living God who dwelt in that temple. And so continuing from verse 25, when Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak, because he already knows what's going on here, what do you think, Simon, he asked, from whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes, from their own children or from others? And the question is really, like it's served on a plate, isn't it? You mean, you can only choose one or the other answer. If you're a king, you're going to tax your own family or everyone else. There's no way the answer couldn't be what Peter rightly says. Verse 26, from others, Peter answered, and Jesus then points out the logical conclusion, then the, the children are exempt. Jesus said to him, but, there's a big but, it's contrast, I, I'm exempt, Jesus has said, but, so that we may not cause offence, go to the lake and throw out your line, take the first fish you catch, open its mouth and you'll find a four drachma coin, take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. Uh, incidentally, the first thing that I really love about this reading is that you would know for sure that you would at least catch one fish if you're Peter at this point. For me, that would be wonderful because I'm a fisherman who likes to feed the fish, but I don't necessarily... But if Jesus said you're going to catch one, then at least you will definitely catch one. But what's going on here? Well, I think uh, to paraphrase this, Jesus is saying, yes, he is the Son of God and therefore he is certainly exempt from the tax for the upkeep of God's house. But as the son of God, he actually has the freedom to choose if he wants to humble himself in order to serve. It's actually precisely because he has all the authority of the Christ that he can rightly, legitimately choose to humble himself before God and to serve others, to not cause offence. It might be hard for Peter and the disciples to believe this. They've been struggling for the last few passages, haven't they? But, you know, if Peter gets a four drachma coin, which he kind of needs, out of the first random fish he catches, well, then maybe he can believe that even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And maybe Peter and the other disciples would therefore learn that Likewise, they should not rely upon themselves, but 
take up their cross and follow the one who gives good gifts, even miraculous gifts like a weird coin from a fish. You see, is the glorious Christ, the Christ who is greater than Moses and Elijah, as we saw last week, as the one for whom God has recently given his audible voice, saying, this is my son, listen to him. Jesus did not have to choose to pay the price for your sin or mine. He was not under compulsion to do that. But as the Son of God, without compulsion, he freely chose, we are told in the Gospels, he chose to lay down his life just as he would choose freely to take it up again. Now, what does any of this have to do with kingdom faith? Well, it's a constant challenge to trust God's miraculous provision is not really for our glory, but for His. That's, that's a constant challenge we have, especially in our materialistic world and culture. And it's a constant challenge to trust that God's miraculous provision is actually all that is required for us to run the race that's been marked out for us. And yet, denying ourselves daily, taking up our cross, actually frees us to concentrate on the needs of others. You see, when you're dead, i.e. when you've taken up your cross, dead people don't have any needs anymore. You're actually freed up to look after everybody else. And as sons and daughters adopted into the family of God, which we are if we're in Christ, as, he's, as sons and daughters of the King, we serve others not because we have to, but because we can, because we can choose to. And that's actually far better and more enthusiastic service anyway, not when it's under compulsion, but when it's done with the freedom of your choice. You see, kingdom faith gives me the freedom to no longer be concerned with my rights, but just to be concerned with loving God and neighbour. And it's with that that Matthew brings us now to a key point to which the teachings he's recorded from Jesus here, I think, are leading. Put simply, kingdom faith, if you want to summarise it, is decidedly childlike. The little child is the one who's completely unaware of any rights or worldly status and totally aware that they 100% rely on their carers for provision. That is the kind of faith that those in the kingdom will have and actually must have. Chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You see, this is the question to which the preceding section has been building up. Given that we've been learning that kingdom faith is the opposite to worldly notions of power and self-sufficiency and status, given that kingdom faith is more about giving up rights and status and serving others by choice, well, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who then is the model citizen of this kingdom? Now, there is a certain irony to that question because if you really do get what Jesus has been going on about, it wouldn't actually occur to you to see who's the greatest at anything. But nonetheless, Jesus answers the question and he answers it by giving these people and therefore us the example par excellence 
of kingdom faith. And we see it in verse 2. He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. A couple of weeks ago, uh, for whatever reason, uh, one of my two favourite congregation members, namely Thomas Dingwall, required some babysitting. The daycare thing wasn't open or someone couldn't come or whatever. Kate had to go teach scripture. It was only for an hour and a half or whatever. I was like, yeah, and, and he was going to be asleep, actually. If, I'll just come and sit in your house for an hour and a half. It means you can teach scripture. But sort of close to the end, as I was there, he, he started stirring. I could hear, you know, from the baby, a little thing, oh. It's finished his nap, I'll go pick him up. So I went and I picked him out of the bed and of course he was all sort of sleepy and dopey and he kind of went like this on me for a bit but then he kind of looks just like... He probably just calculated, yeah, this isn't mum and this isn't dad but... Nah, and he just kind of <laughs> flopped out. Of well, what choice does he have? He's got a big, warm guy. This will do, you know, like it wouldn't occur. He, he probably knows it's not mum or dad, but he's like, mm, mm, I'm dopey, I'm, I'm going to lie on you. That, that's, that's what all little kids are like, right? The little child has no rights upon which to make demands. Now, I mean that from the perspective of the child. Of course, in reality, children have very important and very significant rights. Rights that our culture, sadly, in many ways is actually infringing upon. We're going to see next week's section, as a matter of fact, that Jesus has a lot to say about the importance of little children. But as far as the children are concerned, you see, those rights are given in the absence of the child's ability to apprehend any of them. The child simply holds on to whatever is provided. And they've got no sense of self-sufficiency. They can't have, it doesn't occur to them. When there's something lacking, the first thing they do is pretty much go, Aah! and the parent ideally is gonna sort of hear them and, and, and heed it and, and meet the need. That's why Jesus, along with pretty much everyone from every other human culture can describe them as he does here as lowly in the eyes of the world. Nothing to offer other than their extreme wonderful cuteness. No utility by which they might earn their keep. Just dependent little beings whose first instinct is to cry to help or just as telling when they become toddlers to basically do this. To just put out their hand when they want something to receive. That's what they do. And that's why it is so fitting that those upon whom the sign of entry into God's kingdom is made by way of baptism are precisely those who have no ability and can only depend on what is given to them and done for them. Now, of course, that in itself is nowhere near a sufficient argument for the, the rightness of the practice of infant baptism. But like I said at the beginning, I'm not interested in doing that here. But I hope you can see that regardless of your position, why many Christians do and have held that there's something very right about the infant being the one upon whom the sign of Christ's cleansing is performed. That's the way you enter the kingdom of God, like a little, needy, helpless child. 
And given that Jesus says we're to change to become like little children, which I assume change is an ongoing thing, well then the logic will be something like the more we grow as Christians or the more mature we become as Christians, the more it must be the case that our, our reliance on God becomes childlike. The more childlike on our uh, reliance upon God sort of needs to be. Just as Jesus, who was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but sort of went down, down, down and humbled himself in obedience and reliance upon his heavenly Father to the point of death on a cross, well, so too, in our spiritual lives, we're to continually increase our dependence upon him. Anyone ever seen that movie, Benjamin Button? Show of hands. Eh, hands down. The cool thing about that film, apart from the CGI to make an old guy gradually get younger throughout the film, is that um, it's kind of a, respect, uh, a good reflection of the Christian spiritual life. You become more and more dependent. You get sort of more childlike as you grow. Yeah, that works for about the five people that have seen it. But everyone else, watch Benjamin Button. By the way, though, the idea that growing in maturity must involve increasing our dependence upon God and becoming, in a sense, more and more childlike, that's also one of the reasons why suffering, though itself a horrible thing, can yet also for the Christian become a means of great blessing. You see, for the Christian, suffering produces a necessary increase in our childlike dependence on God, who is soon to bring us into our eternal glory with Christ. You see, the suffering can get so intense that you're left with no recourse other than to cry out like a kid or put out your hand. All people will have some level of suffering, but as a follower of Jesus, it actually has, as a byproduct, but a very important byproduct, a great and helpful purpose. It makes you more like Jesus in humble reliance and dependence upon God. By way of implication, I thought, as I often do when I read these texts of Scripture, and I, I, I feel like I, I've got a sense of what God is saying, well, how do I apply this to myself? And I like to be easy on myself. Uh, some who are parents will know that in, in an afternoon when you ask your kids, you know, how was school today, like sometimes it might be a bit tricky to get a very articulate response. But I've learned that a really cool thing today to, to do is to say, not how was school today, just I say something like, can you remember one thing that happened today? That's more likely to get a response. And then once you've got one thing, the, the door opens a little bit, right? So I'm going to apply that principle here. Really, really low level, super, super easy on a daily basis, gosh, on a weekly basis, right? Find one thing to give thanks for. So you remember, we're childlike and we're dependent. We have so many gifts from God. Find one thing to give thanks for. Now, hopefully, if you've been following carefully enough, you should be thinking, Ben, shouldn't you be pushing us towards prayer? And then eventually you'll think of something you need or want or that's important. <laughs> You're in prayer territory. But just start with one. Tell yourself one thing to be thankful to God for. I'm thankful. For this. Actually, while I'm at it, I'm thankful for that thing. Oh, that thing needs fixed. Hey, God, can I... 
There's prayer. Get it? Second, similarly, find one, there it is, one thing to be God conscious of. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, the disciples couldn't heal this man because they had insidious self-sufficiency and Jesus pointed out, as I showed you from another gospel, they didn't even pray. This kind can only be driven out by prayer. It makes sense that if I'm to grow in my childlike dependence of God, that I could put something, say, in place where I'm sort of suddenly reminded or made aware of my reliance upon Him. It can be an arbitrary thing and in my case it is. I confess this to the congregation this morning, so I might as well do it here as well. Anyone ever go for a walk around the lake at Harrington Park? You know, yeah, it's a thing people do, right? Yeah. I have no idea why, but this is just how it is for me, right? Sometimes I walk around and there's this little section, sort of closer to the coal's end than like the, the Bunnings side, if that makes sense, where I have no idea why they're there. There's these big poles with these wooden ducks on the top. And they're really like rigid and just like facing horizontally. And has anyone actually seen these things? They're there, right? Some people notice them because they're like, that's what... And I asked this morning, do, they, do those ducks have any purpose? Apparently they don't, they're just artistic. I thought maybe it will be one of those wind things, you know, where it tells you... That. Anyway, it's not. I have no idea why they're there, but they're just something that I noticed. Now, let's say, and I've done this before, let's say I go past and I notice the duck... And for some bizarre reason, maybe once I, I was thinking of something from the Bible or I prayed at that point, it just so happens that every time I see it, I'm now triggered to think, oh, what could I pray for, right? Now, I recognise that's arbitrary, but the fact that I've just told you about that means the next time you walk past and you look for that duck and you might go, oh, what's something I can pray for? Now, it doesn't have to be that duck, right? It's just one wooden thing. But you can see the idea. I've just got little, some little triggering association. It happens with music with me as well, by the way. If I'm driving in a certain area and there's a certain song playing as I drive on a street, the next time, even if it's months later that I'm on that same street, I remember the song, right? You can see where this is going. You can just insert something of God consciousness, right? Give thanks for my wife and my kids. Pray for my kids. I pray for my kids that they'll grow up to be wonderful, God-fearing men. I pray that if any of them are going to get married, that the women they marry are going to be God-fearing Christian women. Any children they have would also be followers of the Lord and will be used mightily for His kingdom. Now, do I pray that every day? No. But could I be triggered to pray that every now and then? Yes, I could. Hey, duck, I'm going to pray for my kids. <laughs> See how it works? Just find anything to give you that kind of... God consciousness. Last thing, and I preach this to myself more than the other two, is this thing. The word Sabbath means rest. No, I'm not going to go into the theology of the Sabbath day and how it's working this. Uh, I'm going to say that it's really, really wise because we're creatures to have a day off. Having a day off can mean all sorts of things, something leisurely, something fun, something, you know, which ideally includes thanking God for good stuff. But having a day off forces you into childlike dependence because I'll tell you a really big secret would you believe that when I have a day off even though I'm not working God somehow who knows how he does it without me but somehow he keeps running the world and he keeps making his kingdom grow and he keeps maturing his follow. I don't know how God does that without my amazing input and effort. 
but it actually works. So that means I'm free to have my day. I'm free to be like the kid who goes, this will do, right? Now I speak tongue-in-cheek, but you get the idea, don't you? Like it's, it's, think of how, at one level, profoundly stupid it is to think that I'm that important, I'm that non-expendable for whatever piddly bit of worldly work I'm doing, like a drop in a vast ocean. Of course, God doesn't need me to keep working. Those things that are going to fall to the ground, he's got it covered or they're not that important or someone else will pick up the slack. Now, I said this this morning, I'll say it again, when I preach this to you, who knows what I'm doing when I point the finger? The three fingers back, right? So I'm really, I'm really preaching this to you. It's okay to have the Sabbath. It's okay to give yourself that day off. It's okay. Things will still be all right, even if you drop the ball to make sure you have a rest, because that's going to make me, I mean you, just childlike, forced to be childlike in our dependence on God. And with that, I feel like I'm about to go sit down, so I'll lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he took the humbled, the shameful, the despised way of the cross before entering his glory. And he did that so that people like us could have our most important and vital needs met and that therefore you're the God who delights to meet our needs and that therefore we are freed to think about service of others. We are free to not have to worry about worldly status and what we can accomplish. Heavenly Father, please guard us from insidious self-sufficiency. Please increase our faith, make us more childlike, make us more prayerful, give us times and triggers to be God-conscious. And Father, may we, uh, where needed, repent or at least get better at letting things go, having time off, being like little children, knowing that you're the one who's actually in control of all things and holding all things together. Heavenly Father, we pray that we'd not get blinded by pride and by power the things of the world that that looks so inviting and so sensible but in the end is so stupid and foolish instead like little children may we just cling to jesus and grow in our christian maturity like babies that's in jesus name we pray amen